Well, there are uh, plenty of words that get overused in everyday conversations, don't you think? I'm sure you could think of a bunch of them uh, right off the top of your head. And uh, today we're going to talk about one of those. I'm not going to tell you what it is just yet, but I have a feeling you will figure it out pretty soon before we get there. Um, but I, I'm excited to start this new series today. We are, are beginning our new Advent series, and I know I've said this probably many times in Christmas's past, um, but you know, one of the things that, that, that is always a bit of a challenge and kind of fun is how do we come at the same story, but in a different way, so that we're not just kind of saying the same thing year after year. You know, this is our 21st Christmas as a church, uh, 21st time we've been through some type of a Christmas focus. And I'm excited about what we're on to this year because we're going to go to the Old Testament prophecy that is uh, from Isaiah 9-6 is probably the most well-known uh, prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And we're going to go through and take this verse where it says, His name shall be called. We're going to look at the, the, over the next five weeks, five different things. That, uh, that, that are kind of the names of, of the coming Messiah and what that means and how that ties into Jesus. So I'm excited to jump into that here in a little bit. But the, the verse is Isaiah 9-6. Let's just start there. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so those are the, the, the five different... Uh, names of God, aspects, characteristics of God that we're going to dive into over the next five worship services. So if you figured out where we're starting today, that over, over, overused word, be wonderful, if you knew what it was, right? Uh, th this word wonderful is something that just kind of, it really does get overused. And we talk about it, generally what we mean by wonderful is something really good that happens, right? Our kids are coming to see us, wonderful. Um, you know, we, we uh, have opportunity to, to, to spend some time with, with family. That's wonderful. We're going to actually see the sun today for the first time in about four days, right? Wonderful. We have our Christmas shopping almost done already. Really wonderful. Texas beat Baylor on Friday. Not so wonderful, right? But, but we use this word to really just kind of mean good things that happen. But I want us to think about it in, in different terms. We're going to look at the actual Hebrew word together. It's the word pele. And it, I want you to think of it in, in, in terms of if you were to break apart this word wonderful. Literally, what that word means is full of wonder, right? Wonderful. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Not just, oh, this is something pleasant and happy, but that God is a God who is full of wonder, we're going to go through the Old Testament and, and look at a few different places, a few different passages today um, that, where this word is used. And there are so many different um, ones that we, we don't have enough time to do all of them. Um, but, but that word can, can generally, it means one of two things. It means extraordinary and hard to understand. Or it can also mean God's powerful acts of judgment and redemption. And both of those are true in the coming of the Messiah. Certainly that first one is true, that, uh, that, that, that this is something that is extraordinary and hard to understand. How do we wrap our minds around this concept that God himself decided to take on human flesh? You know? I mean, that, that is wonderful in the sense that it is more than we can really grasp. How could that be? How could it be that the, 
the eternal God, the everlasting God, chose to step into human history, chose to take on human flesh, to subject himself to, to some weaknesses that come along with that, um, and, and then to allow himself to be misunderstood, to be beaten, crucified, to die in our place, to give his life as a ransom for us. I mean, that, that is difficult for us to wrap our minds around, right? And that's also tied into that is this whole part of, of God's acting on our behalf to, um, to bring redemption or to bring judgment, which both of those are tied to the coming of Jesus. The judgment of sin, that the remarkable part about this, this is nothing new, that God would do uh, these, these remarkable acts. The thing that makes us new is that God is judging sin upon himself. He's taking the own uh, on himself in Christ. He's taking judgment for sin. He's also bringing redemption. So all of these things are fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're going to have a couple of different passages in Psalms, starting in Psalm 119 today, uh, verse 129. <clears throat> and let's read 129 through 131 together. It says, Your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I will obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. So your statutes, it said, are wonderful. But some of you maybe, you have a different translation. Actually, a more accurate translation of that word. Some say, may, your tests, may say your testimony is wonderful. This is the same word used uh, when talking about the ark of the testimony, Exodus 25, verse 16 says, And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. That's referring to God's law. So when it says here that your statutes or your testimony, uh, that, that this is wonderful, it's talking about the, the nature of God's law, or we might even just say today God's word that he gives to us, but starting with that law. It's a conditional agreement, originally, that God had between himself and his people. Listen to the way he describes it in Deuteronomy 30, 16 through 18. It says, For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient... And if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. So you see that the conditional nature here. Follow God's law and you will receive blessing. Don't follow God's law and you're going to reap the consequences of that as well. So here's the first thing that we see about how God is wonderful and his testimony or his law is wonderful. And that is that God gave us the law as a way to receive his blessing. That's what it was originally intended for. He says, if you follow this law, you will receive a blessing from me. And we see this over and over again uh, in the Old Testament where the same kind of idea, you know, obey me and, and I will bless you. Um, if you disobey me, then you're going to reap the consequences of that as well. And, but, but I think it's important for us to understand that, that God's design in saying, here's the law that I'm giving you. It wasn't um, to take away their joy. 
It was to add to their joy. It was to be a blessing to the people. And, you know, it's easy for us to kind of get that mixed up in our minds. And we think, oh, well, you know, God's laws and God's rules. And it just, you know, it just takes all the fun away. And, you know, the people that are just kind of doing what they want, they're the ones that are really enjoying themselves. And uh, most of you in this room probably have lived long enough to know that's actually not true, right? We may think that sometimes, but... The reality is that when we follow God's design, we end up being blessed as a result of that. Um, but they, 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 people you know, kind of miss that, and we can sometimes miss that as well. But it's this wonder. It's this thing that's kind of difficult for us to wrap our minds around, right? That, that following God's law actually brings joy. But there's an, another aspect to that as well. God gave the people the law to allow them to see that they would be incapable of fulfilling it completely. You know, sometimes as human beings, we just have to be allowed to try and fail before we learn, right? It makes me think about the, the many, many times where my sweet wife has tried to tell me a certain way to do things. You know, guys, anybody been in that boat? And I'm like, no, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it this way first. And then after it doesn't work, I always end up coming back and doing it the way she originally told me. But sometimes you just got to try it yourself, right? Sometimes you just got to try it and, and, and figure out, okay, this doesn't work. I figured that out on my own that this doesn't work. That's part of what the law did for the people is it allowed them to come to a point of understanding, okay, we can't get there. And so this conditional agreement that was, I will bless you if you follow it. I will curse you if you don't. God then gave another promise about another covenant that was to come. And it's described in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make. With the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So there's this new covenant that is to come and, and this wonder of the, the law uh, being upheld, that's to be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. The one who would institute this new covenant in our relationship with God and the one who would actually be able to meet the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. That's why Jesus is wonderful. is because he alone is able to meet God's requirements. He alone is able to fulfill the law. And so all of this is kind of pointing toward this new time when rather than people trying to justify themselves based on the law, it would become a personal thing. I will put the law on their hearts. It would become more of a personal relationship. That's what Christ came to do. Now, let's turn back just a little bit, staying in the book of Psalms to Psalm 77 and look at another place where that word wonderful is used. Psalm 77, 14 and 15 and when you see this word miracles in verse 14, it's the same where it's actually the word wonders, but it's translated miracles here. It says, starting in verse 14, you're the God who performs miracles or wonders. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. So 
you are the God who, who does wonders or who performs miracles. The second thing I want us to see, what does it look like for God to be a God who is full of wonder? And that is that God performs miracles on behalf of his people. That's part of, of, of what this term means. Things that are beyond comprehension, right? Things that we can't necessarily just wrap our minds around. And the one that he's talking about specifically, if you were to read on just a few more verses there in Psalm 77, you see that he's referring to God leading the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. You get to the end of the chapter and, and he talks about how you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And that's just a reminder that God has a flair for the dramatic when it comes to performing miracles, doesn't he? I mean, just stop and think about all the different things that, that he has done. And this is a great example of this. You can't get much more dramatic than that. You know, continually, Moses going before Pharaoh, let my people go. He refuses to let them go. Finally, after the tenth, the final plague that took away and killed all the firstborn sons in Egypt. After that, he finally said, go, get out of here. And so the people leave. They uh, begin to make their, their way out into the desert. And then all of a sudden, they hear... You know, the ground starts to shake and they hear a bit of thundering noise and they look up and there are hundreds and hundreds of Egyptian chariots coming after them and countless horsemen that are coming after them and they brought the entire army out. So what does God do? Well, first of all, he lets them get really close. Not close enough to do harm because then he puts a barrier between the Egyptians and his people so that they cannot get to them. But he lets them get really close. Close enough to uh, scare the living daylights out of the Israelite people. And they start saying things like, why do we have to come out into the desert to die? And then the next thing God does is he says, I want you to stretch out your staff over this water. So they've got Egyptians on one side. They've got this massive sea behind them. And God parts the sea. We know that story, parting of the Red Sea. And he drives it back and there's a wall of water all through the night. He continues to... Keep his presence up so that the Egyptians can't come after them. Um, says that they, they go across on dry ground. They get to the other side. The Egyptians come in. You know the rest of the story, right? God closes the floodwaters. All of them are drowned. I mean, you talk about a dramatic scene that he sets up so that he can perform his wonders or his miracles on behalf of his people. And that's just one example. I mean, over and over again, God just providing in dramatic ways, whether that be making food appear on the desert floor causing water to come out of a rock, causing the sun to stand still, causing a, a jar of oil and flour to never run out, to continue to provide, even causing a donkey to speak. I mean, God, God definitely has a flair for the dramatic. And the, the wonders that he performs are, are just amazing. And, and then you get to the New Testament, and isn't that exactly what we see in Jesus? We see Jesus performing these same kinds of miracles, these same kinds of, of miraculous things that are showing the wonder of God, whether it be, and again, flair for dramatic, whether it be healing a man on the Sabbath in the synagogue in front of all the religious people who thought that that was the worst thing they'd ever seen in their lives, to uh, Jesus you know, allowing, a, being in a boat that's almost capsized and, and a storm and then calming the storm to uh, driving out demons out of two demon-possessed men and sending them into a herd of pigs that then run off a bank and drown in, in, in the, the water below them to certainly um, raising the dead. I mean, you talk about dramatic 
kinds of miracles. That's what Jesus did. And so what we see God do in the Old Testament, and this word wonderful, one who, who works wonders, who works miracles, we see that fulfilled in the life of Jesus as well. And by the way, um, you know, we say that a lot of times these miracles were very dramatic in nature. I guess almost by definition a miracle would have to be, right? Because a miracle is something that happens in a, a place where there's no other explanation, that you, know, you don't see it coming. And I'm encouraged when I remember that because it reminds me that when we find ourselves in impossible situations, that's a good place for God to show up and do something dramatic. Now, granted, God doesn't work by our timetable, and we're not the ones who determine when he does and doesn't do that. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of sick people that Jesus healed when he walked on the earth. But there were some sick people while Jesus was on the earth that didn't get healed. There were people who were raised from the dead while Jesus walked on the earth. But the vast majority of them weren't. And so you know, we can't put God in a box and say, well, you know, here I am and now it's time for me to demand of God that he work this way. It doesn't work like that. But when we find ourselves in very difficult situations, it certainly is a place where God can step in and do something significant. And he's done that repeatedly. That's part of who he is. And there's a greater purpose. One, one of the, the reasons he does that is because he loves and cares about his people. And that's a way for him to demonstrate compassion and love and concern for his people. But there's another reason that Jesus did that. And it's described in John 10, 36. I'm just going to start kind of midway through verse 36 and read through verse 38. It says, why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. A significant part of these works he's describing are the miracles that he performed. These wonders that, that Jesus did that pointed to the fact that he, he really is who he claimed to be. That only God could do these things. You know, the, the miracles that Jesus performed all throughout his life, it's interesting if you stop and think about, um, Jesus had bookend miracles on the front end and on the back end of his life. We're, we're coming into the Christmas season, so we think a lot about uh, that one of those miracles on the front end of him coming into the world. I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself. But the fact that a virgin would become pregnant with a child. That is scientifically impossible, right? A, a woman's egg has to be fertilized in order for her to become pregnant. And that's not what happened with Mary. It says that this baby was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this incredible miracle on the front end as Jesus comes into the world. And then we know the rest of the story because he came in order to become our sacrifice for sin. So he gave up his life. He died on the cross for us, and on the third day, what happened? Rose from the dead. So bookends, front end, back end, very dramatic miracles that we see Jesus performing and, and that, that point to who he is. And by the way, just a little encouragement, if anybody finds yourself in a place where you know, you, you, you're losing hope or you feel like, man, I just don't know how I'm going to continue on, that back end miracle of Jesus rising from the dead that's a great reminder that we are never without hope. We are never in a place where God is incapable of doing something. The, the, the story is never over. And uh, that's because we serve 
this great God who performs miracles. But you know the miracles that God performs are not always you know, those dramatic types of, of things like that. A lot of times the miracle that God performs is what happens inside the heart. That's what Jesus came for. I, mean, I think about it in Ezekiel, you know, where it talks about, I will uh, take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That, to me, is one of the greatest miracles. And for some of you, that's your story. I mean, literally, that's what happened for you, is that you had a very hard heart toward God, and God got a hold of you, and he changed your heart. Maybe for some, you're still in that place of having that hard heart, or maybe you have a family member or somebody you care about. Maybe you're one that you've been praying for is somebody who has a very hard heart. And I just want to remind every one of us today that God is a God who does miracles of changing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. If that's you personally, I want to encourage you to allow God to do his work in you. If you have that hard heart toward God for whatever reason, maybe you've been hurt, maybe you've been burned in some way, but I just want to encourage you, would you, would you allow God to do a work inside of you? Just give him an opportunity to say, Lord, I want to, to let you, if you're real, change my hard heart and give me a heart of flesh. And, and he'll do that. He could start that today. He could do that today for you if you'll allow him. And if there's somebody in your life or somebody that you love that's in that situation, just continue to hang on. Continue to pray, continue to, to share and to love and to show God's grace to that individual because God performs those types of miracles as well. And when he does, it defies logic. It doesn't make sense. That's what this wonderful means. All right, let's look at one more <clears throat> passage where we see this word used, and it's in Isaiah 29. If you want to turn over just a little bit, take a little bit of a right turn there from Psalms to Isaiah 29. Verses 13 and 14. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. There's those words again. The wisdom of the wise will perish, and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. You see what's happening in this passage in Isaiah. He said, the people come near to me uh, with, with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. These are folks that are going through the motions of doing the spiritual things. They're probably attending whatever uh, types of, of worship services they had. Maybe they're bringing their offerings to God. Maybe they are seeking to follow the law, but it says that their hearts aren't in it. And it's all just become a matter of following the rules and... As a result of that, what God says is because their hearts are not in it and because it's just a bunch of rules, it says, therefore, because of that, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. And, and in this case, one of the, what he's going to do through these wonders is he's going to show that the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent mean nothing. When God performs his wonders, all of that just goes away because he is able to see and to reveal what is in the heart. And that's the last thing I want to leave you with today. What does it look like for God to do his wonders? It's that he reveals what's in the heart. You know, if there's one thing we see in the coming of Jesus, it's that Jesus couldn't have cared less about the traditions and some of the rules and things like that. In fact, that's what got him in so much trouble. He didn't play by the rules. 
And the religious people got very offended by it. But Jesus didn't care. He wasn't concerned about that. He was concerned about the condition of the heart. Luke 17, 20 and 21, it says, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. In other words, like a law to be followed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. What he was saying is, I am ushering in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was all about having a relationship and being a follower of Jesus. It was an internal thing, not an external thing. And that was radical. I mean, that was mind-blowing to the religious leaders of the day for Jesus to come in and say, what matters is not following the rules. What matters is a relationship. What matters is what takes place in the heart. Man, that's a powerful reminder for us today too, isn't it? How easy is it for us to get hung up on following the rules? You know, I come to church. It's remarkable to me, by the way. I hope your, your gospel conversations are going well as you're seeking to share your faith. We've been going through this, who's your one emphasis and, and that kind of thing. And um, Here's what I find most of the time when I have any type of a gospel-oriented conversation. I won't say a word about church, but just talking about a relationship with God and that kind of thing. And the response is usually this, and I got one of those this week. The guy said, you know, I haven't been to church in a long time. And, and that, that's where our minds go, right? That if I'm going to be right with God, that means that I go to church. Now, going to church is important, obviously. I think that that's valuable, but... In our minds, a lot of times we equate doing right before God with following the rules, going to church, doing the religious things. But Jesus made it very, very clear that God is concerned not about all those external things, but God is concerned about what's in the heart. And going back to Isaiah, I mean, he... He jumps all over them because it says their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. There's nothing personal here. There's no hint of in Jeremiah 31. Remember we said this new covenant that was coming and the law would be written on their hearts. It would be very personal, very relational. That's not what is being described in Isaiah 29. And so that's what Jesus came to change goes back to what we said a moment ago about Jesus being the one to meet the requirements of the law on our behalf. No longer is it about us trying to be good enough. It's about him having met those requirements. Now, the rest of the story beyond that is that once we come into a relationship with Christ, once we, we have our hearts changed, as we talked about a minute ago, that heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. Well, then there is still a desire to follow God's laws and God's plan. And, and that there's joy in that. If we go all the way back to the first passage we're at, there is joy in God's statutes, in God's testimony, in living the way that, that God designed us to live. And the Holy Spirit inside of us gives us a desire to do that. But that's not what makes us right before God. That's not what justifies us before Him. Now, to a lot of people, that seems foolish. And maybe that's why it says in verse 14 that he will astound them. And it says the wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. If you look at this just from a, um, you know, just from a perspective of those outside the faith, it would say this doesn't make sense. You know, you're, you're talking about this person that, that 
he came into the world who's God and he, he died for sins and I'm just supposed to put my trust in him. I'm supposed to follow him, but it's, you know, I don't have, it's not a certain number of things I have to do. I mean, it, it really, it doesn't compute with the way that most of us were brought up to think. And yet, there really is a lot of wisdom in that. In fact, go into to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and read it. And it talks about the wisdom. You know, it is, it's what seems like foolishness to those who are perishing. is really the wisdom of God. And that wisdom is that, that we rely on God alone. And that he is the one who enables us to, uh, to, to, to be able to even have a relationship with him in the first place. And so these wonders that God performs are all about the heart. It's all about the relationship. And so with that in mind, as we begin to hit the ground running and, and move into a very busy uh, Christmas season, I know things are probably about to get crazy. If they haven't already, maybe they already are coming off of Thanksgiving weekend. Um, there's going to be a lot of activity. There's going to be a lot of stuff happening over the next few weeks. Can we just pause and reflect and, and remind ourselves that what really matters is what's inside here. It's our relationship with God. It's what's in our heart that really matters. And when we look at these wonders that God performs, all the things that he has done and the miracles that he has done and, and, and the, the, the law that he has given us, all those things are wonderful. But really what it comes down to is, but, but where's your heart? How's your relationship with God? And are you slowing down enough to, to fully appreciate that uh, during this season? And, and that's, that's what I want to end with today is just asking the question, what's keeping you from really having um, the depth and the intimacy in your relationship with God that, that you'd like to have and that you know that you should have? And what are you going to do about that? See, Christ came to do a work inside of us. Not so that we would get hung up on all the externals, but so that we would know in a personal way this God who works wonders on our behalf and who changes our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask today that, that you would help us to focus on who you are, Lord, what you have done in us, and Lord, thank you that you change hearts. Thank you, Lord, that, that you are a God who uh, is personal. I thank you, Lord, that, that we don't have to try to follow certain statues or, or be um, justified by the law. But, Lord Jesus, you've, you've done that on our behalf. So, so grateful for that today. Lord, I pray that, that we're just surrendered fully to you in every way today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.